Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. This is episode 52. And what does that mean, everyone? It's it's like a whole one year, year old. One year anniversary is actually more than a year because we haven't stuck to just doing weekly. This is actually like a bi-weekly show at the moment as things have started to get busier. But 52 episodes. It's an achievement, isn't it? I think it is. Quite impressed with That's us. That's a lot of rambling. I'm going to say well done, Bugs. Yeah. It's longer, it's longer than we've stuck at most things. <laughs> Being in a band, Keza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've done all right with that as well. We've done all right, done with, all right that. with that yeah. one. Um, yeah, so I'm your host, Angela, from the band Bugger, and actually the whole band is here because it's a special episode. Ooh. It is, it is. So we've got Gracie Two Keys, Paul of Snow, otherwise known as P-Dog, and we've got Keza. Sup? There we go. This whole gang. whole gang's here. Crew. Yeah. So... We're doing a special episode because it's 50... Well, I don't know why it's special. It's just a podcast with four people on. But um, <laughs> we thought we would uh, try and go, hey, it's special because we're all together. But we're kind of like lockdown sort of coming to an end. So why wouldn't we be? But um, yeah, so we have themed the show about songs with numbers in them just because we Why can. not? <laughs> because we're not that good at coming up with imaginative ideas. <laughs> and we went... 52 is a number. What shall we do? Songs with numbers in the title. Yeah, we haven't done that yet. So I think I think it's a good theme. There were loads of really good songs to pick. That's true. I've picked a random one. It's a good song, but it's it's not. I don't think it's like the obvious one to have picked. I mean, what what would have been a more obvious one? I mean, I know what you're doing, Kerry. I mean, that's the first <laughs> one. That's, that's the first one that I yeah. thought of. I was yeah. thinking of five. Anything by the band Five. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, then you would have been wrong, wouldn't you? Because it's songs with the number in, with a number in, not a band. <gasps> oh, my God, I've just realised what we should have done that we haven't done. What? Mumbo number five. Oh, oh no way! It didn't even occur to me until just no. now. Yeah, Mumbo. <laughs> not the same song. song. That's no, a different not, song. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, hey, Mumbo, Mumbo Italiano. <laughs> Idiot, we're an idiot. Edit that out. I won't edit that out. Keep it. <laughs> but that brings me on to talking about making mistakes. There is a correction that I um, have been informed about. So, in the episode where we talked about, um, I think it was episode with arcs on there actually. So it was the Brighton themed episode, which was Welcome to the Horse House or something like that was called, and uh, I talked about the band L7, and I said that when they were on The Word, they pulled out a used tampon for it in the audience. It wasn't on The Word, it was at Reading Festival, but on The Word, they did pull down their trousers. So, you know, they still did something. But I, I, you know, I can admit when I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Often am. That's that's correction corner out of the way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's 
that's it. Yeah, that you one put correction. an S on the end of correct, correction, so I thought there was going to be a few. Well, there you go. You've just corrected me again, Grace. <laughs> yeah, that was the second correction. Thank you. That's one is whenever correction corner comes up, it's like, oh, what did I get wrong this time? Yeah. <laughs> My heart went. It. <laughs> also, massive shout out to Mark, and I don't know whether it's ever okay to give out people's surnames, so I just use yes, good first idea. names. Um, who sent us a really lovely email about the Dolly Parton episode and he um he included loads of sort of quotes from her as well which were really really quite cool so i might put them in like a sort of social media post about the show because they're really really nice bits and pieces in there so thanks mark and thanks for listening thank you mark thank Um, you thank you right on with the show we'll save all the other boring houseworky bits which is like you don't mean housework no she means housekeeping (laughs) number three Okay, on with the show. We'll save things like the other housekeeping stuff, like Patreon shout-outs and stuff, to a little bit later. But thank you, Patrons, thank for you, all your donations. You. Oh, I will actually just say it now. T-shirts will be arriving um, this week. They were supposed to be here last week, but they didn't arrive. But I've been promised they'll arrive this week. And it's the exclusive Patreon design, so they'll be going out in the post to you um this week as soon as i have them i'll update you but um yeah really cool design if someone have if you haven't seen it yeah it's really good exclusive to patrons um right okay kerry are you gonna go first sure go for it let me go first i'm gonna try out try out some german for you oh so the did you study german at school GCSE German. Very good, Keza. Let's see what you remember. All, all for this moment. Um, so I am talking about Neunundneunzig Luftballon, also known as Ninety Nine Red Balloons. Yeah. Never would have guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> as we said, kind of like one of the first ones that comes to mind when you think about songs with uh, numbers in the title. So it is a song by the West German band Nina from their 1983 self-titled album. And then the English language version, um, 99 Red Balloons, um, with the lyrics by Kevin McAlia, who was an Irish keyboard player and writer, also known for working with Kate Bush and David Gilmour. So he wrote the the sort of English translation of it. Um, that was released the following year on the album. Uh, I feel like I have to say it in German again now. Uh, <laughs> Neunzig Luftballons after uh, the worldwide success of the original. So uh, you may or may not know that it's an anti-war song because I feel like it's one of those songs that you hear all the time Mm -hmm. or that like you're aware of having heard um, but you've never really thought about what it's about. Well, it's so upbeat and happy. Well, yeah, it's it's not an obvious anti-war song, right? No, not at all. Um... So, yeah, it's an anti-war song that aims to make a point about the paranoia and hysteria surrounding the issue of war in the 80s. So in the 80s, there was a lot of sort of paranoia around things. I guess there was um, stuff going on with the Vietnam War and there was the bit of like stuff with like the Soviets around that time as well. Right. So there was a lot of sort of worrying about being on the verge of war, I think. Um so Nina's guitarist, uh, Carlo Cargis, got the idea for the song at a Rolling Stones concert in West Berlin in June of uh, 1982. Um, so the band released Balloons as part of the show, 
and he watched them move toward the hor- and as he watched them move toward the horizon he noticed them shifting and changing shapes causing them to look like strange spacecraft and it made him think about what might happen if they floated over the berlin wall to the soviet sector and being mistaken for missiles could potentially sort of cause world war three or something like that was sort of the yeah daydream that he went off in in his head was seeing this um, so the song therefore tells a story where Nina and the listener buy 99 red balloons in a shop and let them go. The, ni- the 99 balloons are mistaken for UFOs, causing a general to send pilots to investigate. Finding nothing but balloons, the pilots put on a large show of firepower. Not really sure why that's you would do that, but sure. Um, <laughs> the display of force worries the nations acro- along the borders and the war ministers on each side bang the drums of conflict to grab power for themselves. In the end, a cataclysmic war results from the otherwise harmless flight of balloons and causes devastation on all sides without a winner. So the anti-war song finishes with the singer walking through the devastated ruins of the world and finding a balloon and letting it go. So that's kind of the story yeah. that's told in in the lyrics of the song, basically. Um, so apparently another source of inspiration for this um, that the band have said um, was a newspaper article from the Las Vegas Review Journal about five local high school students in 1973 who played a prank to simulate a UFO by launching 99 aluminized aluminized mylar balloons attached with ribbons to a traffic flare and the red flame from the flare reflected by the balloons gave the appearance of a large pulsating red object floating over Red Rock Canyon outside the Las Vegas Valley in Nevada. That's pretty cool, wow. though. I think mean, that's quite fun. It's a pretty good prank, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of... Um, <clears throat> I think it's really interesting how all these things came together to sort yeah. of create the idea for this song um, through, yeah, seeing the balloons at the concert and then this story about this prank and sort of this idea of mistaking balloons for ufos or missiles or or something else just an interesting concept to have sort of come about um so another interpretation of the song is that it's about the dreams of the german people that were lost after world war ii so the 99 balloons represent the many dreams that each person had at the end of the song nina just wants to prove that the german people did have dreams by finding one balloon so she finds one balloon a dream and she lets it go a lot of depth to this. Yeah. A lot of depth to the Happy 99 Red Balloon song, right? But which one do they say is the actual... So the the guy who wrote wrote it. Yeah, so I mean the the inspiration of the the concert and the the newspaper article have definitely been cited by the band. The thing about the dreams, I think, is more of an interpretation that people have. But I found the same interpretation at a few sources, so it's kind of a... So it's what someone else deemed it to mean. To yeah, them. I think yeah. so. More so than what the band themselves yeah. have said. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really great song um, that has a lot of levels to it. Um, apparently, Nina, um, the first time that she ever heard the lyrics to it, said, um, I got really fat goosebumps and said, oh, Carlo, that's the best you have ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Carlo, right? Eh? <laughs> um so yeah, so the German version of the song reached number one in America, Australia, Japan, and a lot of Europe, which then prompted the release of the English version. Um, so the English version isn't a direct translation of the German version um, because it's translated so it makes more sense poetic, kind of poetically, rather than maintaining the exact meaning of the the original. Um, so a lot of people um, find the English version sort of lacking in the special atmosphere that people felt that the German version had. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and even uh, the band themselves uh, said that they sort of disapproved of the English version, even though they performed it and they signed off on it and everything. But um, the band, in 1984, the band's keyboardist and song co-writer said, we made a mistake there. I think the song loses something in translation and even sounds silly. Um, and in another interview that month, so that this was in March 1984, the band, including Nina herself, were quoted as being not completely satisfied with the English version, since it was too blatant for a group not wishing to be seen as a protest band. I think they're overthinking it. <laughs> That's to be enough. honest. I, th- I don't know, because having spent a bit of time listening to the two of them side by side, I do see it. The, there is, like, something... The German version is better. Like somehow in the english version the way that the the lyrics i guess of what they feel is that the lyrics have been simplified i suppose mm-hmm. so like the nuance of the message yeah. they were getting across is kind of lost and it's just a bit like obvious too obvious and in your face if you like with what it's trying to say um and overall the english version of the song was not as popular as the german um version with the exception of in the uk ireland and canada where it charted at number one but everywhere else the german one had charted higher than um than the english version did including places like the states and yep. australia really so yeah so the us australia um a lot of europe and japan all yeah the german version charted at number one but the english one was much lower um but yeah in good old uk we uh <laughs> we were like yeah we want it in english yeah <laughs> <laughs> But that's probably why we all think of it as being a quite a happy sort of end of the night kind of party song. Yeah. It definitely sounds more like that in English than it does in German. I mean, it's still obviously the music is the same yeah. on both versions. So it is still upbeat and kind of jaunty and jolly. But um, yeah, I don't know. Somehow in with the German lyrics has a slightly darker tone to it, I think, than comes across with the English lyrics. Yeah. So yeah, unfortunately, the band were a bit of a one hit wonder. They don't really have much international success aside from that one song. Um, So a few years after um, the song kind of had success, they broke up. Um, So I just wanted to finish with a couple of fun facts about the music video. Um, So the music video was shot in a Dutch military training camp with the band performing the song on a stage in front of a backdrop of fires and explosions that were provided by the Dutch army. Um, And towards the end of the video, you see the band kind of taking cover and abandoning the stage. And that wasn't planned. It was genuinely that they thought the the explosions were getting out of control um, (laughs) and panicked and like are all like running off the stage. And you can actually you can see them like physically wincing every time one of the explosions goes off. It was obviously much louder and closer and bigger than they were expecting. And you can see them all kind of like covering their ears and like wincing as it goes off and then starting to like get out of town you play with fire <laughs> yeah seriously i think there's a story about um in a i don't know why i know, remember this but i'm sure there's something about there's a my chemical romance video where there's loads of fire and the drummer like caught on fire and got really badly burned or something really yeah i, I might, didn't know that I, might, I might have made that up but i think that that's a memory anyway um, <clears throat> correction <laughs> yeah we'll find out later um and then the other fact so in 2006 Um, So much later, VH1 Classic, uh, an American cable television station, ran a charity event for Hurricane Katrina relief, um, where viewers um, who made donations were allowed to choose which music videos the station would play. And one viewer donated $35,000 for the rights to program an entire hour and requested continuous play of 99 Red Balloons, um, the video for one hour. 
So the station broadcast uh, the video as requested from 2 until 3pm on the 26th of March. No way! They yeah. did that on repeat? Madness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would for that amount of money, wouldn't yeah. you? Well, yeah. That's what they said, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't really argue with it. So, yeah, that's what they had to do. So... Yeah, that's it. That's 99 Red Balloons. Good, nice good. I didn't, I didn't know any of that, really. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting song. Yeah. Um, I kind of knew, I don't know why, I sort of knew it was an anti-war song, but I hadn't really looked it's, into yeah, why yeah. it was. I just sort of went, oh, okay. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought it was a wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> a wedding song? I didn't think it was like... <laughs> Someone not, wrote it to be a wedding song. It's not Here Comes a Bride, I'll give you that. Yeah. But it is a wedding song. <laughs> Yeah, it's written specifically for people to let go of 99 red balloons at their wedding, too. <laughs> now you're getting silly, Kate. Now you're getting what do you silly. mean I'm getting silly? You're the one saying that it's a wedding song. You always have to take it to the... Step too far, don't you? Yeah, take it to the extreme. Right, have you got some new music for us, Kerry? I do, indeed. Um, so I've played this band once before, um, and they are uh, some of my favourite people. Um, so I've got the new song by Jatentia, who are an indie pop rock duo from Montreal, um, and also just two of the most lovely, wonderful human beings ever. So their new single is called, and I'm not, I feel like I'm going to say this word wrong because it's a weird word, Sojourn. Is that how you say that? Ooh. Sojourn? Yeah, Sojourn. 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 Yeah? yeah, I'm going with Sojourn. So it's called Sojourn. Um, so the band say about the song, um, Sojourn means a temporary stay. The word is a poignant reminder of our ephemeral nature. Walking one spring morning, a chill crept up our spines, a cold that the bright yellow sun couldn't melt away. Friends of ours, a newly wedded couple, died in a motorcycle accident. They had been so young and so in love, full of smiles, laughter and gumption. They both lived life to the fullest and we thought the best way to honour and remember them is to try and do the same. So the melancholy and contemplative lyrics embark on a journey, stone by stone, from the bottom of the well of depression and doubt. The listener is lifted into the light and the singular realisation that in life or death it's going to be okay. So this is Sojourn by Jatentia. Going 
So that was Sojourn by Jatentia. Um Sorry, I'm well really just... Kim, you're so proud of yourself. I'm really struggling with saying that word. It's because I'm just overthinking it now, so it's become really difficult to say. But yeah, what what did you guys think? Really like it. It's really got really nice. nice kind of kick-back, chilled vibe yeah. to that one. Yeah, definitely. It's a song I like to listen to in the mornings at the moment. Getting ready for work. Do you now? I do, yeah. Nice and, nice and chilled out. Are they the band from Montreal? Yeah. Cool. Nice. Um, so yeah, make sure that you go check them out. We'll put links to where to find them in the show notes, but you can find their music on Spotify, Bandcamp, Apple Music, all the normal places. So uh, yeah, go check out more of their stuff because they're awesome. We sing through all of this stuff now, aren't we? So who's going next? I think it's Paula next, isn't it? Is it me? Am yeah. I, are we doing the two sides of New York? Yeah. Yes, we are. Cool, cool. Okay, so first up, I'm covering Across the 110th Street by Bobby Womack. Um, It was a soundtrack to the film of the same name that was set in Harlem. 110th Street is a street that divided Harlem from Central Park and was widely regarded as being the kind of sort of dividing line between, in terms of like race and class and like socioeconomics and everything, in New York in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, This time, like sort of the late 60s, early 70s, was a time when New York was coming out of a summer that was known as the Hot Summer, which saw riots rip through the US as black communities responded to poverty and police brutality. Kind of not unlike what we're seeing today in some parts of America. I think that's something that I I really got from this song, is that a lot of it's still quite relevant now, not just in the US, but in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was also a response to black communities responding to the grief at the killing of martin luther jr okay um it was also a time when feelings of black power were everywhere within the african-american community across the u.s and injustice and a fairer and more equal society was being demanded across 110th street portrays new york city at a time when crime drug use poverty was at an all-time high like there were prostitutes filling times square and all this is kind of referenced into Mm -hmm. the song there's a lot of talking about drug taking prostitutions pimps the economy is broke, its infrastructure is crumbling, 
Harlem itself was a place of little opportunity. Middle-class residents have fled, leaving the poor to abandoned buildings and empty storefronts. Every block of Harlem's major avenues were burnt. 24% of the area's population was living on welfare, and between 1976 and 78, the population of Harlem fell by almost a third. So basically anyone who could get out of Harlem was getting out of there. And I think this song reflects a lot of the kind of mood of the time yeah. within the sort of that area of New York. I also think it's quite autobiographical. Um, though he didn't grow up in Harlem, he grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. He grew up in a very like, poverty-stricken background. I mean, his mother told him he could sing his way out of the ghetto. And recalling his childhood, he said, we came up very poor. My kids had a much better life than I ever thought I would be living. They were so poor, apparently, like, they were going to supermarkets to dig kind of bits of pig trotters and snouts out of the kind of the rubbish from behind there. Like, oh, there was, like, wow. no money at all. And this song is super autobiographical. He was the first, no, he was the third brother of five. Yeah. And, like, the opening line talks about him, like, sleeping in bed with his brothers, the third of five, doing whatever he had to do to survive. Yeah. So, He's not judging the people in this song. He's just seeing like it through the lens of his life and how yeah. like if you've got nothing, yeah. this is how you live. You're just trying to survive. It also kind of sort of for me rallies against like racial and social injustice, social injustices, and also that kind of class element of the haves and have-nots. Mm. There's a line that says, "The family on the other side of town would catch hell without the ghetto around." In every city, you'll find the same thing going down. So he's kind of saying like, "Look." They've got it because we haven't. And it's yeah. also, for me, I think it's kind of a reaction to the people that fled Harlem because they were like, hell no, we don't want to be here. Mm. Yeah. I think like what I really like about this song, um, the singer himself, he has some, que- there's some questionable things that he's done in his life. Like it's well documented. There's a lot of drug use. You know, there's, he was caught in bed with his wife's daughter. There's oh a lot God. of things about him Bloody that are super out. questionable. Okay. And down the dark part. <laughs> I wouldn't feel comfortable covering it without mentioning it because mm, I think yeah, if you're going to cover it yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to say it but I also think like this song is a great sort of social commentary almost it's got an, it's got an amazing musical score underneath it his voice is brilliant and I think it's so relevant to what's going on today not just in the US but in the UK as well yeah yeah it's a it's a tough thing that you know trying to whether you should or shouldn't um separate the person from the music and you know the fact is that there are lots of kind of terrible people that have written really inspiring music that has a really good message um and it's just that thing that people aren't one thing right Mm. um and multifaceted they are multifaceted um and it is complicated and it's difficult to sort of find yeah the right way to kind of talk about it and think about it sometimes and like i say whether or not you do separate the music or not but you know, I think that it sounds like quite an important song in a lot of ways. And I think in this case, maybe to some extent, you can sort of still see that as being a great song and see him as being a questionable person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I struggled quite a bit with it. As you know. <laughs> Should I be covering this or not? I think like the best thing that I read whilst doing this research was this quote. Across 110th Street is the most trend transcendent black exploitation anthem devoid of headstrong posturing just widescreen regret aspiration and longing an elegantly urgent baselines timeless croon bone chilling street life and a message to every stricken city in the world transmitted from harlem nice. oh, that's nice oh, that's a great quote i wish i could write something like that <laughs> <laughs> crazy it's like a city on the brink of just collapsing through through just yeah i know i mean obviously something had to change but i look mm. at or what 
I can't, I don't live there. So, but what I perceive yeah. of what Harlem has become now, and it's a very sort of sanitized version of what it was, and you know, communities rather than being helped to stay within the area and regenerate yeah. it have just been kind of shifted out. And I think it's that's something you see across cities. Yeah, gentrification, man. You know, just um, <coughs> yeah, just uh, shifting people out, and then you go, oh, haven't we done a good job? Crime rates have dropped. Look at this, it's amazing. Yeah, so you just moved just everyone. Moved yeah. <laughs> So that was across 110th Street. Cool, yeah, nicely nice done. one, Peter. Nicely done. All righty, so should we go on to some new music then? Yep, yeah. you're going to do the, the Loud Women. Yeah, so yeah. I am going to play Reclaim These Streets by Loud Women. It's their fundraising single that features 64 female voices and musicians from the likes of My Bloody Valentine, Banana Rama slash Shakespeare's sister, Hurtling, Desperate Journalist, I Doris Berries, and a certain person from Bug-Eye. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, could that um, be me? <laughs> well, there's loads of voices yeah. on there. It's, it's a fantastic song, which everyone's going to hear in a moment. And it was actually penned by um, Cassie, who is the founder of Loud Women, who was also a guest on this show not so long ago, who's done a tremendous job pulling this all together. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Julia, our Julia... Did the, did the, the cover? Yeah, did the cover. Very excellent so, um, there from Julia. Yeah, no, it's it's um yeah it's it's, it's a fantastic message behind that was sort of inspired um, from the Sarah Everard um, murder, and uh, yeah, it comes. This song just comes from such a good place of community and just pulling together. It's fantastic. So should we give it a spin?
So that was Reclaim These Streets by Loud Women. It's out at the moment. Buy it, stream it, stream it, buy it. It's for a great cause. <laughs> and then give it another stream and another yeah, stream and another buy. buy. Why not? <laughs> Come on, get behind it. <laughs> okay, so we've got two stories left. Mm-hmm. Do you want to flip for it? Or are you going to go next? I, I don't mind. Do you want to just go? I'll go next. I'm happy just sitting here chilling. All right, fair enough. So... I've decided to do Positively 4th Street by Bob Dylan. Does anyone know? I do know this song. Yeah? Yeah. I actually don't. Sorry, lads. Bob Dylan fan, Angela? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm a massive Bob Dylan fan, right? And I've not talked about him yet on the podcast. So I thought I'd take this opportunity. So Dylan fans and rock critics consider it as like a reprise of Like a Rolling Stone, which I Mm. assume everyone's Mm. heard of, right? Okay. So they sort of come as a pair. So Like a Rolling Stone was the big hit. Mm-hmm. And then um, Positively 4th Street was released not long after, the same year, 1965. So, um, yeah, so it was released in 1965. It charted at number seven in America and number eight in the UK. So it didn't do as well as... Uh, did Like a Rolling Stone get to number one? Or like number two? I would I assume think it was so. Is yeah, that number two, it was wasn't like it? That. I think it was like number two. I don't think it hit the, the, the top spot. No, I don't think it did. One. So, it's basically referred to as the first ever diss song. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, some people dispute that. They think there was one before by the Beatles. I can't remember which one. But it's been referred to, well, it's always referred to, I know this was like on Twitter and online reviews and uh, Dylan forums that I've been reading, the most toxic verbal assault in rock history. (laughs) It's a big stream, isn't it? An intellectual middle finger. That was my favourite one. Um, the most savage, ice-cold lyrics. The Guardian wrote something like, it's so vicious you feel guilty for listening in, but it's so compelling you can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. like I don't know if you remember well, the lyrics to these songs. I've got, got some of the lyrics. I've got some of them. So, like, it's it's a, like a real character assassination. It's like bitterness and hatred. <laughs> you can hear you can feel it in the lyrics. So twisting around on his Because I remember my dad was, was big. He was, he's still alive. <laughs> my dad's a massive Dylan fan, and so like I grew up listening to him, and I always used to want to switch this one up. Really? Because I, I was like, this is really horrible. Why would you say these horrible, mean things about someone? But so I was like, but I never figured out like who it was about. Um, so the, the last two lines are like some of the most famous Dylan lyrics. He says, I wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes, then you'd know what a drag it is to see you. <laughs> oh, so good. It's so good. Yeah. It reminds me a bit. The vibe is a bit like um, You're So Vain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like that kind of song, doesn't it? It does. But, I mean, yeah, it does. It's... I mean, I I just think he's a genius. Oh, he's an absolute genius. But, I mean, that song, lyrically, I think that's, you know, the top of his game. 
We've, yeah, it's all, it always makes like the best Dylan tracks of all yeah, time. Yeah, it, it does. always makes those. It's always, always in like the top ten that you'll find. Yeah, It'll be in the top five of that for sure. And it does feel a bit like a Rolling Stone, into like mm. um, sonically. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the whole the song is yeah, it's good. It's worth a listen. Anyway, so there's loads of people over the years who have claimed to be the person mm-hmm. that pissed Dylan off, right? <laughs> you just so, would, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> there's, there's loads. But uh, there's so many theories out there about who it's about. I found, like, the top five. Okay. So okay. I'm just going to go through them, right? So the first one is that it's about a professional American football player called Carl Eller. So during Dylan's brief stay at the University of Minnesota, he tried out for the football team, um, which played at Memorial Stadium on 4th Street, so that's where they think the fourth mm. thing comes from. Ah, okay. And during his first practice, he tried to block, Dylan tried to block Ella, but Ella flattened him and then laughed at him. Mm-hmm. And they, people think that's where the line, when I was down, you just stood there grinning, in the song comes from. And apparently, no one really knows, because like, in classic Dylan mm. style, like no one really yeah. knows... A lot of he's so, he like self mythologizes, mm-hmm. doesn't he? No one really knows that much about him. Um, but he, but yeah, apparently Ella refuses to discuss Bob Dylan or the song even to this day. So it could be, it could be that. It could that be. Sounds, that sounds, nah. that sounds plausible. Um, the second theory is that it's aimed at a guy called, sorry, where is it? Erwin Silber. I think that's how you say it. So at Newport Folk Festival in 1964, Dylan started to turn away from his topical political songs and he performed a more sort of introspective set. Um, This was the year before he went electric. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the editor, Erwin Sibler, of America's top folk music magazine, Sing Out, published an open letter to Dylan, speaking on behalf of like many left-leaning civil rights supporters and folk enthusiasts enthusiasts who saw Dylan as their spokesperson obviously mm-hmm. and it like the letter implores him to give his music some serious thought because he feels like he's sold out and he's like lost contact with the people that he's supposed to represent um, and he writes something like your new songs seem to be all inner directed now inner probing self-conscious or a little cruel on occasion it's happening on stage too you seem to be relating to a handful of cronies behind the scenes now rather than to the rest of us out front and Dylan's response in classic, like, throw your toys out the pram style, mm-hmm. it was to stop any more of his songs being published in Sing Out magazine. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's, yeah, he doesn't seem to be uh, an easy guy to get on with, does he? Because all no. these are true. Like, these yeah, are yeah, true, yeah. but we, we don't know which one is actually legit. inspired the, the song. I'm going with the second one at the moment. I'm going with the first one at the Do you moment. Reckon? Yeah. I'm, I'm with the second one at the moment. I think it might be the second one. Well, wait, wait for the other three well, I'm just saying that's where I'm at at the moment. Right, so th- theory number three is quite similar to the second one. So some think he's calling out the naysayers to his shift to his electric mm-hmm. sound um, in 1965. So 4th Street ran through Greenwich Village where they all used to hang out and there was a lot of controversy around him turning away from the folk scene. Um and then there was the when he was booed and called Judas at that gig in Manchester. Have you read about that? No. Yeah, it's a really famous thing in like the Dylan history. He, um, yeah, he was called Judas in uh, for selling out. Um, and it's he, so extreme. Yeah, right? I mean, music is kind of important to me, but Judas. I mean, do you that's know what pretty, I mean? That's quite. <laughs> and people did really lose their shit when people didn't wait. 
People did really lose their shit though when uh, when he went electric. Oh yeah, massively. <laughs> oh, you've seen that. You can hear it on recordings yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. the festival. Like people are going mad. But yeah. it's just because they put him on this massive pedestal, yeah. isn't it? Really? Well, he like... always like in interviews. Whenever he's asked about why do you think you're the voice of a generation, he's just like. Well, I'm not. I, I don't yeah, know. He just didn't yeah. see himself as as that person. Um, so yeah, he was pissed off at people for asking him which side he was on. So there's a theory that we, that it was written about that. Um, theory number four, which I don't like, because there's always it's about a former girlfriend mm-hmm. called Suze um, Rotolo. I think that's how you say it. Um, she actually, I feel like doing an episode on her because she was really, really interesting. Um, they dated between 1961 and 1963, but she was a huge inspiration on Dylan, and I didn't know any of this. Um, she taught him loads about the civil rights movement, and apparently okay. before they got together, he wasn't, he was quite apolitical. Okay. And she introduced him to, um, she took him to his first Congress of Racial in, um, racial Equality meeting, and apparently all of his political songs, he used to check them by her first to see if they were, like, right, if he was, oh, like, on the right side. Okay. Yeah. So she was a huge inspiration. Yeah, she sounds like a legend. Yeah, I need, I need to mm. find out more about her, because she, um, she inspired loads of his early songs, like uh, One Too Many Mornings, Tomorrow Is A Long Time, and Don't Think Twice It's All Right, like, that's always makes the Dylan top. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, one of the theories is it's about their breakup, and he did write a scathing song about her sister. That's what he's like. It's really horrible, um, so I wouldn't put it past him. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really strike me as a song about lost love. I feel like no, I, was it's, say, it's, 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 I don't not, like that one. Doesn't sound like it fits. No, quite. And the last theory that's. Um, one of the popular ones is um, there was an incident involving Bob Dylan and protest singer Phil Ox. So a few of them were out drinking in Greenwich and Dylan lived on 4th Street at the time. Uh, they went back to someone's apartment. Dylan played everyone a new song he'd written called Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window, which I think was released after Positively 4th Street. Um, and he was saying, oh, this is the best thing I've ever done. Modest. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone agreed with him. <laughs> and everyone agreed with him except for Phil, who said it wasn't a hit and it's not as good as any of your other singles. So I think Dylan must have like bitten his tongue for a bit. And then later on they all got into a car to move on to another place. Um and then in the car he ordered he just ordered the car to be pulled over and threw him out <laughs> and said like, and just hurled loads of abuse at him on the street. And then Phil didn't speak to him again for years, and a song was even written about this feud by an American to- uh, folk singer called Todd Snyder, who I'd not heard of. Um, it's called Thin World Mercury, and the lyrics go, Poor Phil Ox, sad and low, hands in his pockets, wondering where to go. Watched those taillights leaving him behind, thrown from the, li- from the limousine for speaking his mind. So, could be that one. <laughs> It could, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. it could be. Um, but yeah, they're the, they're the five main theories, and no one really knows because I'm sticking with the second one. But I'm five or one, yeah, I reckon. Me too. They, they yeah. make more sense in terms of the timelines as well because mm-hmm. I was looking at when all these happened and when it was released, and yeah. they make more sense. But I just think it's an, an, aimed at an amalgamation of everyone who's ever pissed him off. Really? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of reckon I it's more probably, like a little bit of all of these things. I think so. Yeah. Two fingers, yeah. that's the world kind of thing. So it is quite, it is quite a therapeutic song if you're fuming. That's <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. So yeah, Bob Dylan and uh, Positively Fourth Street, one of the most vile songs in uh, <laughs> rock, rock history. <laughs> that was really good. I love that one, Grace.
So we're going from a song about hate Ooh. to love. Oh. Right, okay, so love potion number nine. Do you know this one? No. I don't you know. don't know this. I reckon I, I, probably, I probably do if Did I hear it. Did you play it on Saturday? I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a pad on 34th and Vine. Selling little bottles of love potion number nine. That's your clip, so... Hopefully you've you all know it now. Yeah, from I know that, now, that yeah. little clip. Got it. Right, but yes, so oh, right, sorry. move me notes. Don't I'm be not don't lucky. be peeking. I'm not right, so Love Potion Number Nine is is an absolute classic, I reckon, although you hadn't heard of it. And it was written back in nineteen fifty nine by hit makers Jerry Lieber and um, Mike Stoller. Um they wrote loads of records at the time they were part of a sort of hit factory if you like um but the song describes a man seeking help to find love so he talks to a gypsy who determines by means of palmistry that he needs love potion number nine um the potion an aphrodisiac causes him to fall in love with everything he sees kissing whatever is in front of him eventually kissing a policeman on the street corner who breaks his bottle of love potion after that um in disgust um <laughs> And it was the lyric, Kissing a Cop, that led the song to be banned on some uh, radio stations. Really? Really? Just yeah. for that? Yeah, well, it's a gay cop. kiss, isn't it? It's, yeah, well, it doesn't specify no, the gender not, of the cop, does it? I think no, we're probably it, back in a time I where you make assumptions think, about the gender yeah, of the cop. This is, this is 1959, <laughs> yeah. I think. It would have been a man cop. But from reading it, it was, it was basically insinuating like a guy kissing a guy. So that was, that was definitely something that was not wow. going to be um, permitted... Uh, did, uh, the did, did the FBI get involved again? Oh, they probably <laughs> did. They're probably still watching them now. Yeah. <laughs> Listening to it over and over exactly, again. Exactly, to see if there's any other clues Trying to see there. if they can tell from the tone but of his voice what even... the gender of the cop is. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm surprised um, that it was that lyric that only got it banned because it, had, it has, like, phrase of saying um, how he was a flop with the girls, meaning he couldn't get it up. So, you know, there was some really sort of blatant lyrics... In, in this song, but the first the first to perform and release the song was um, a group called the Clovers. They were one of the few R and B groups of this period to cross over into rock and roll and to to chart in like the main chart as well as the R and B chart. Um, so the Clovers, for those that don't know, were an American rhythm and blues doo wop vocal group who became one of the biggest selling acts of the nineteen fifties. Mm. Yeah, so they were they were big big news, not just across the pond, but over here as well and in Europe. Love Potion Number Nine was a hit for them. Uh, it reached number twenty three in the US charts, but also number twenty three at exactly the same time in the R and B charts. Spooky. Ooh. I'd love to hit it, number nine. I was going to say it would have uh, been yeah. spookier if it yeah, hit number nine. That would have been better. <laughs> that would have been um, a better fact. <laughs> but you know, was it cursed? It was their last hit single. Ooh. After that, Ooh. again, <laughs> would have been better if it was number thirteen. <laughs> 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 it was also a big hit for Mersey Beat Group, The Searchers, who I think you'd probably know that version. Yeah more than than the clovers version um and that they covered that in 1964 and that reached number three in the charts so that did pretty well so there wasn't a great deal more to read about this and i didn't want to go into the details of the clovers which i think are a group to um to talk about in another show really um because i think there's some interesting stuff certainly recently as well about them suing each other and stuff is i think <laughs> 
there's some good stories here. <laughs> I need good. to go with that. So, juicy. yeah, so in my research, love potions, I came up with some recipes <laughs> for love potions, which I'd like to share with you. Oh, very oh. nice. Um, so, number one is Spanish fly. I've actually written spinach. Fly here. <laughs> um, Lovely. Don't think that's a real thing. Um, so, we're going way back to ancient Greece with this one. So, Spanish fly is a deadly insect. It's like a kind of bluey, beetly type thing. But it was a popular ingredient back in the day for love potions. It was crushed up and mixed with herbs and put into tonics. It caused um, feelings of warmth to course through your body um, that was normally due to inflammation rather than <laughs> desire. <laughs> um, and it's also believed to have killed quite a few people. So, um, yeah, but that was a popular thing to to put in a number of different tonics. At the Sounds time. like Sambuca. Yeah, it sounds a treat, doesn't it? <laughs> Poison, yes. Uh, so Sambuca. <laughs> so number two recipe. So Native Americans would use lizard tails in their love potions and lizard necks were deployed in traditional Nigerian spells. In some cultures, though, a drowned lizard was thought to be the opposite effect to love. So it's just it's just so strange, isn't it? That like what why a lizard? Why not? Like what? Why the Spanish fly thing? Like how do people come? Like how do people come? <laughs> yeah. up with I kind of get the Spanish fly thing if it's making you have a physical yeah. reaction. Like that, I can almost understand. Yeah, yeah. True. Well, I mean, I've read I've read lots of crazy recipes that then you know, sort of as you go on through time, they start getting even more experimental. And so the last one is my favourite. Um, this is from the Middle Ages. Uh, so if you took a fancy to someone and wanted to seal the deal. Mm-hmm. Took a fancy. Yeah, exactly. Well, you have them fall madly in love with you, then baking them a special cake was the way to go. <laughs> right? Fair enough. Now, when I read that, I thought I was going to be like hash cakes or something like that, or something to do with magic mushrooms. No, 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 no. No, no, no. This is, I want to say better, more amusing. I wouldn't say uh, I would prefer to have a cake made of this. But, uh, so what do you think this cake might have been made of or might have included? Which country are we talking about here? Where's, where's it originating um, from? UK. UK. Mm. It's going to have some type of leaf in it, I think. Okay, Paul is going with the leaf. Grace. Freaky herbs. That's a leaf. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going for something testicle related. Right. I'm, actually, can I go ground bones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go with that. I'm going go ground that. bones. Why you not? can have the leaves and herbs. Right. I'll go ground bones. Going into like serial killer territory, (laughs) how to get rid of a body. (laughs) Oh, right. Well, if you want a cake to work, it's love potion magic, then here's what you do. Number one, you get naked. Okay. Of course. I mean, that goes without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You wear a penny? No, no, no. No. Totally naked, naked, mate. Totally naked. naked. Don't be diluting this now. You've got to follow this Mm. to the point, right? Number two, rub the dough into your armpits, <laughs> your breasts, and your genitals, obviously. I yeah. feel like I get points no, for no testicles. No specific order with that, you know, any, any order you like, yeah. but as long as you cover those bases, that's good. Um, the dough needs to absorb your sweat, you see, and other um, juices. Pheromones. Um, yes, yes. Optional to put in a bit of blood or skin in there. Down to your personal tastes. <laughs> 
then you have to bake the cake but it's really important this part you have to remain naked while doing it <laughs> or it really won't work and then finally you deliver the cake to said person that you desire and but you still naked at that naked? point uh, <laughs> by that point you've put your clothes on by that point you've put your clothes on but you've delivered the cake i sip um i suppose you could do that didn't say didn't say you couldn't decorate the cake i mean you, you know I think maybe discuss. I'm sure there's all bits of hair and all Consid- sorts of Considering stuff what's in it, I don't want to know what they'd ice it with. No, no. It's least you love, isn't it, really? But I wonder what was in love potion number nine. Bit of skin, bit of blood. <laughs> it was a cake, really. Bit of sweat. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was my very short <laughs> and it. random well trip into love potion number nine and love potions. Very good. Very good. Yeah, so... I suppose it's that, that we're out of stories now, aren't we? We are. Children. <laughs> <laughs> the rambles are done. The rambles are done. So just a little bit of um, I keep want to say housework. It's not housework. Housekeeping. Keeping. Housekeeping. But isn't housekeeping like housework? It's like yeah, but for some reason it's not. It doesn't make sense in this context. No, nothing makes sense, does it? So <laughs> call nothing it makes sense. There is no point to anything. Why do we even do this? <laughs> So if you've got a song or a story you want us to share with the world, then do email us at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. If you want to join the cool kids over at Patreon, there's space, there's room for more people there. So patreon.com forward slash bugai and you can find us there. Um, Anything else people want to say? Didn't the song you're about to play come in as a request? Oh, it did. It did, yes. So Mark, who... Another Mark. No, it's the same Mark who e- emailed in the correction and some really lovely stuff about um, the Dolly Parton podcast that we did. Also um, requested that we play the new one by Kath and the Kicks, which was kind of on my list anyway, but I thought I'd bring it forward. Kath and the Kicks, who've played before, they're a Leeds-based uh, rock trio. And the song was written in lockdown and is about being grateful for the things you have And uh, I suppose in the band's words, um, what they say is, there's always a way to experience and be grateful for the world around you. Life is so delicate and precious. Sometimes we get lost in the everyday. We don't see how blessed we are to have the most simplest of things. When when you do realise how lucky you are, despite what might be happening in your life, that is when you really are living, which I think is quite nice. So... um, Positive vibes. Positive vibes, positive vibes. So here it is, Kath and the Kicks, I'm Alive. 